2: Welcome to the 120th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, cybersecurity, and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia.
3: And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is Zooming into 2021 with Audio Video Discovery.
2: A very clever title. I like it. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsor, Logical, instant discovery software for modern legal teams. Logical offers perfectly predictable pricing at just $250 per matter per month. Create your free account at any time at logical.com. That's logic with dot com forward slash L-T-N. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, PINow.com. If you need a private investigator you can trust, visit PINow.com to learn more.
3: Today, we're lucky to have two of our favorite guests, both of our friends, Brett Burney and Doug Austin. Brett is principal of Burney Consultants, LLC, and focuses the bulk of his time on bridging the chasm between the legal and technology frontiers of electronic discovery. He is also the co-author of the 2019 eDiscovery Buyer's Guide, which can be downloaded for free at www.ediscoverybuyersguide.com. Brett is also very active in the Mac-using lawyer community, working with lawyers who want to integrate Macs, iPhones, and iPads into their practice. Doug Austin is an established eDiscovery thought leader with over 30 years of experience providing eDiscovery best practices, legal technology consulting, and technical project management services to numerous commercial and government clients. Doug has published a daily blog since 2010 and has written numerous articles and white papers receiving the J.D. Supra Reader's Choice Award as the top eDiscovery author for 2017 and 2018 and the J.D. Supra Reader's Choice Award as a top cybersecurity author for 2019. Doug has presented at numerous webcasts, events, and conferences, including Legal Tech New York, ILTACON, Relativity Fest, University of Florida eDiscovery Conference, Master's Conference, and many local and regional conferences. You know, it's really super to have both of you guys with us tonight.
0: Yeah, John and Sharon, it's always fun to be with both of you, and it's great to be here with Doug as well.
1: Yep, and same here. Seems like uh, old home week uh, once again. I'm glad to be here as always, Sharon and John.
2: Well, now that the uh, all the cool kids are in the clubhouse, uh, I, I think that uh, a lot of people don't understand how prevalent audio and video are becoming in ESI collections uh, today. So, So, Doug, how prevalent are they?
1: Well, Sharon, as you know, Brett and I were part of the ACEDS webinar of the exact same name as this podcast, uh, zooming into uh, 2021 with Audio Video Discovery, along with Ashley Griggs of Nice Nixidia last week. And Brett covered several sources of audio and video files that have really mushroomed the prevalence of audio and video in ESI collections today and, honestly, a couple of which I hadn't thought of. When you think of it, there are, and I'm going to sound like Carl Sagan here for a moment, billions and billions of of (laughs) audio and video files um, out in the world that are potentially discoverable. Most of us have a mobile device today where audio and video files can be created literally at the push of a button. Uh, We post many of these files on social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And because of the pandemic, so many more of us are participating in web conference meetings using platforms like Zoom, where many of these uh, meetings are being recorded, because we can. Who knows, even this podcast may someday be discoverable. You never know. So I I think you're really going (laughs) to see potentially discoverable audio and video files in just about any case that involves ESI. The only question really, I think, is how much will there be?
3: Well, Brett, as you know, we do digital forensics, so we get involved in a lot of electronic evidence mm-hmm. uh, pretty much every day. So this is not a test for you, but <laughs> okay,
2: <laughs> tell,
3: tell, t- 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 tell our listeners uh, what, what kinds of audio and video files are, are found in discovery, because I'm, I'm sure, as J- Doug mentioned, they're really not aware.
0: Yeah. You know, it, it, it can really be a, a, across the board. I mean, John, I, I very much enjoy geeking out with you. On, <laughs> and we can go really deep into like the the technicalities of each individual kind of file types that there are, but um, it, it really is dependent upon the type of matter. And, and I don't mean to, to say that, you know, there's a specific kind of audio file or video file for a specific matter, because the more that I experienced this I find that in, in almost you know any kind of a litigation matter there's probably going to be some kind of rich media like this audio and video and it can just come from a variety of different different places some of what Doug just mentioned. I'll say one of the most prevalent areas that I see this arise, like discoverable audio or video files, mostly audio, is like voicemails, right? In fact, I was um, involved in in a matter not too long ago where they had a couple hundred thousand voicemail recordings, right? Today we have... You know, voice over IP systems and and another what do they call them unified messaging systems. I think John, right? Some yep, you know, unified where they, messaging. Where they, yep. yep mm-hmm. Where they have like they record all the voicemails and in some cases they attach those files, those audio files to emails, right? And people can listen to them different ways. And you know, most of the time people are familiar with like the MP3 audio file, right? That's a compression m- mechanism that that has been used uh, for good and for ba- for bad, I guess you could say. You know. <laughs> over the years but it's a very smaller small file that can hold a lot of information there's all kinds of different ways that you can compress some of this audio in there, but it can come even from like audio files off of phone, just like you were talking about, John, when you guys take a, a phone, sometimes people just record their audio into like a, a voice memo recording or something along those lines, mm-hmm. and all of that can be exported out. And then quickly, just what Doug just mentioned at the end there, you know, Zoom meetings or team meetings, a lot of times those can be recorded as you know M4V files or video files with audio, or they can be separated out. So... It really kind of runs the gamut. It's not that difficult, but it's certainly something to to be aware of, making sure you have the right tools to be able to
1: play some of those audio files when you need to listen to them.
2: Well, Doug, how prevalent today is audio and video in litigation matters?
1: Well, to... Um piggyback on what Brett has talked about. You know, we've already talked about how prevalent it is in ESI collections and certainly the types of files, but the real question is how often does it actually apply as important to the case? So before our webinar last week, uh, I decided to take a look at the number of matters where there are disputes involving audio and video in in discovery, Uh, and I did some searches in Kelly Twigger's eDiscovery Assistance site, which has over 13,000 lifetime federal and state uh, case law opinions and adds as many as several hundred cases a month. That's really the definitive source for e-discovery case law out there. And I decided to look at a five-year period from 2015 through 2019, the number of audio and video disputes started at 41 in 2015, and it rose all the way up to 243 in 2019. So that's a six-fold uh, increase over the last four years of that uh, time frame. Certainly speaking from personal experience, and I suspect that would say the same, uh, consideration of audio and video files uh, from a responsiveness standpoint has pretty much become a routine part of discovery in every case that I've been involved with. And that wasn't the case just a few years ago, so I really think it's prevalent uh, pretty much in every case today.
3: Building a little bit on that, Brett, you know, kind of our our experiences, and I, and I tend to agree with with Doug. But there was a, a day, you know, not too far in the the distant past, where everyone kept clamoring for metadata, metadata. You know, we want metadata right. off all these electronic files. But you know, now that we're talking about this this great growth of you know audio and and video information. I'm thinking that it's it's probably a lot more relevant to cases than metadata was in, in past cases. Should attorneys be collecting that all the time or, you know, are they required to collect those and preserve those those types of files or, you know, what are your thoughts?
0: Well, I would say the short answer, yes, if it is relevant and not privileged, right? Just, just like anything else. I, I kind of st- <laughs> st- stole that line from Craig Ball because I remember a blog post he wrote about is social media do you have a duty to to collect and preserve social media, for example, right? And the answer is yes, just like any other kind of electronically stored information today, you know, whether it's stored on a hard drive or, or stored on a cloud computer, or <laughs> I think at the end he's like, whether it's stored on a pulverized piece of pine tree, right? I mean, the idea is like <laughs> audio and video today is going to probably be electronic, right? Unless you're trying to I guess, produce uh, audio from a wax cylinder or something. I, I don't know how you would do that. But I mean, any kind of an audio <laughs> or video today is going to be electronic. And it certainly ha- carries information. And so therefore, it is electronically stored information. And so just like anything else, if it is relevant to the matter and you know it's not privileged or confidential or protected by some kind of, of an aspect like that, then yes, the short answer is you do need to consider it. It does need to be a factor. I still unfortunately run into legal professionals that either they either don't think about it because it's just not something that you know that they've thought of you know in their years of practice maybe or you know in the past going to sort of to your point john in the past there would be people that would argue that's like well you know this this isn't like 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 real evidence right this is this is somebody (laughs) recorded themselves or something and you know that kind of an argument just certainly won't won't fly today so in general, you do have it if it's it is going to be relevant. You know, just quickly another thought that that comes up because we just Doug and I kept thinking about this, like today, like even unfortunately in these sort of um, unusual scenarios and environments in which we live, like body cam footage, right, and a lot of video mm-hmm. footage today from mobile devices are are becoming very. Relevant, right, to some of these matters yep. or to some of these issues, some of these, you know, problems that arise. That uh, it's unfortunate, of course, certainly, but some of that information is accessible in that way. And so, yeah, there is a duty there to preserve that information.
3: So, we, but we don't have to worry about VHS and beta, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, you don't worry about that. <laughs> Well, what, one thing I know that has cropped up a lot, Brett, is that uh, people complain uh, if they're defending somebody that they have to watch hours and hours and hours of potentially of, of videotape, and that costs a lot more money. And, of course, right. the courts aren't pleased about having to fund it. So that's a, that's a big issue on the listservs yes. is how that's increased their workload. What's important to, you, to know when you're collecting and preserving audio files? Because it seems to me like every time I get someone calling about that, they, they don't have a clue as to what step one might be.
0: Yeah, well, you know, my, my first thought quickly on this, and it goes exactly to what John that you were just saying there, even about <laughs> the metadata, it still goes back to some of that. For example, in one case that I was on where they had a collection of voicemail messages, but... Somehow it was either, you know, copied of a copy of a copy, right, which still sounded good. But unfortunately, one of the times when they made that copy, they they'd stripped out some of the metadata. So like you didn't know, you know, whose mailbox, voice mailbox it came from. You didn't know the phone number that it came from. You didn't know the date or the time, you know, that kind of information. I mean, some of that is very mm-hmm. important and relevant when you are going to start reviewing that. So just like anything else, John, to your point earlier, mm-hmm. when you are collecting electronically stored information, that you should certainly consider that. Like think about how is it that I'm going to ultimately review this and produce it and having some of that metadata in order to filter it or sort it, you know, chronologically, whatever the case may be, or you know call it down to like a certain voicemail box within a certain date range, that's that's very important on there. And then the other thing quickly, Sharon, and I would just say, When you're faced with the knowledge, you're going to have to review and produce audio and video to just kind of keep that end in mind, right? To the idea of like, okay, well, this isn't what I'm used to reviewing maybe, like in a relativity database or something else like a textual file. So you're going to have to have some other tools to do that. You're going to have to consider what other platforms that are going to allow you to either search this, if you want to, you know, have a textualized version of this, or an easy way to listen to it. Right? Can you listen to it inside a database, or do you have to like copy it out somewhere? So some of those concerns, to me, are some of the first things I start thinking of. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break.
3: Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com.
0: Trying to cut costs? You're not alone. In today's climate, a five-figure e-discovery bill per month is steep. Don't pay that. Use logical to reduce expense and control your discovery process. Get started today for only $250 per matter and they'll waive migration costs from competing platforms. For more information, visit Logical.com slash LTN. That's Logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash L-T-N.
2: Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is Zooming into 2021 with Audio-Video Discovery. Our guests are Brett Burney and Doug Austin. Brett is principal of Burney Consultants, LLC, and focuses the bulk of his time on bridging the chasm between the legal and technology frontiers of electronic discovery. Doug Austin is an established e-discovery thought leader with over 30 years of experience providing e-discovery best practices, legal technology consulting, and technical project management services to numerous commercial and government clients.
3: Well, Doug, I know one of the things that Sharon didn't mention in, in the introduction there is that, you know, I always consider you to be a real case law guru. So can you let our listeners know a little bit about what the courts are saying about discovery of, of audio and video files?
1: Well, John, more and more, they're saying that the significance of the audio and video evidence outweighs the burden of discovery of that evidence. And sometimes the handling of audio or video files can literally make or break your case. I have actually covered two cases very recently in e-discovery today that illustrate that point. In the first case, Talbot versus foreclosure connection, uh, the defendants recorded a meeting with uh, the plaintiff unbeknownst to the plaintiff. and then when the plaintiff found out about it, uh, the defendants stated that recording was deleted after the empl- unemployment matter with the plaintiff concluded, even though the complaint had been filed by then. Only when the court told the defendants they would be sanctioned did they ultimately produce the audio recording. (laughs) But regardless of that, the court, calling the defendants' actions a shell game, uh, still issued a default judgment and awarded most of the amount sought by the plaintiff and added fees and costs on top of that. So that truly was kind of a a make-the-case type of scenario in that case. In the other case, uh, the other case was uh, Tate versus City of Chicago, which is a case about a civil rights action against the city of Chicago for alleged unlawful search of homes, including the plaintiff's home. And CBS investigated the case, uh, issuing news reports and a documentary. The defendants uh, subpoenaed notes, communications, and audio-video outtakes from CBS under Rule 45, uh, which CBS tried to quash. And the court granted CBS's motion with regard to notes and communications, but they denied it uh, regarding the audio-video outtakes, saying the relevance of the audio-video outtakes outweighed the burden, even though the burden could be somewhat significant. So I think this case shows just how audio-video evidence can be relevant enough to outweigh the burden of reviewing and producing it, sometimes even more relevant than other forms of ESI. And so these are a couple of very recent examples of just how important audio and video evidence uh, can be in litigation today.
2: Well, there's been such a tidal wave of audio and video files recently that what are some of the biggest challenges to discovery of those files?
1: Well, Sharon, certainly one of the biggest challenges is the imperfection of human speech itself. Our communication is much more informal in audio files than it is in written communication. Me personally, I have an um problem when I communicate verbally, and I literally have a sign at the bottom of my monitor (laughs) which says, don't say um for podcasts and webinars and things like this to help me try to keep those at bay. And a lot of us have challenges like that, uh, which make it much more difficult to search audio files for relevant information. It just kind of gets broken up a bit. Uh, Some people speak softly. Some people mispronounce uh, or they stumble over words and people use shorthand language like uh, traders on a trading floor uh, or they'll use slang or they'll use acronyms. Uh, Some of us speak with accents that can be difficult to understand. In Texas, for example, some of us tend to pronounce oil like all and business like bidness. (laughs) And and we all know that people from Boston tend to leave out the R's when they park the car. So, you know, there's uh, we have those challenges. And of course, you know, there's also uh, challenges we have that we all we try to, you know, minimize, but can't always like background noise or static. Certainly one of the things, we talked a little bit about metadata, is uh, there can be often a lack of useful metadata associated with audio and video files. So you often have to rely on your ability to search and review the audio itself to determine if it's relevant or not. Finally, and certainly I know this all so well because I've done a number of thought leader interviews where I've had to transcribe uh, recorded interviews, Uh, they're very time-consuming to review and transcribe. Uh, On average, it takes a reviewer about three hours to review each hour of audio. Uh, So it can be burdensome, very burdensome, to discover audio and video files as well. So there's just a lot of challenges with it.
3: Well, Brett, I know I, I love uh, Doug's impersonation of someone from Boston, but and I can certainly understand. <laughs> yeah. He's
2: he's so he's so much better at the Texas impersonation.
3: <laughs> but I can certainly understand the, the challenges, right? In in, in in the dealing with audio files. So, can you kind of give us your thoughts on some of the main methods to to review and search audio files, even given some of these challenges?
0: Yes. One thing that I like to point out all the time, even though it is going to sound a little silly, but it still bears the time to say it, is that you can listen to audio files, right? And there's one thing about listening, to, to Doug's point, about hearing what is meant to be an, an oral, you know, A U R A L experience, right? <laughs> but when we talk about reviewing and searching audio files, what we typically mean is somehow transcribing that audio file into editable text, right? Not always, but that's generally what, what we're talking about here. So in that area, there's, I, I, I sort of try to simplify this into three main methods that I, at least I've seen. I'm sure there's other ways, but number one is the one we're most all familiar with, probably the most, I call it human transcription, right? This is Somebody could sit there have the audio file in front of them. They hit play, and they sit and they listen for a few seconds, and then they type out what they hear. Right? We're familiar with this, obviously, of course, from court reporters <laughs> or or similar aspects where we are we are transcribing from a, a human person is transcribing what they hear into editable text. Now, the second method is machine transcription, right? Instead of a human <laughs> transcribing the audio, we are asking a computer to listen to human spoken word and then do the best job they can to transcribe that audio into editable text, right? It, we can think of it on a personal level, like with Dragon Dictation or something like that, right? That's that was the, that's always mm-hmm. been the dream. Uh, now, machines are getting better at this, but anybody that's tried Dragon Dictation, knows how frustrating that it can be sometimes. But machines are still not the best. They're not the greatest at all the nuances of spoken word, exactly some of the things that Doug was mentioning. We're usually looking at between like 40% to 65% word-for-word accuracy for machine transcription. The other way I, I talk to people about this is think about the voicemail transcription on your mobile phones, right? Because we know who's calling, many times we can make it out, but sometimes it's just hilarious because it's a machine trying to transcribe that. And then the third and last category is what I generally call phonetic indexing. Now, this is where a computer is being used as well, but it's, it's not listening for words. It's actually listening for phonetic sounds that make up those words. So this is gonna require everybody to kind of think back to their third grade experience, right? What, what we're talking about here is phonemes, right? The phonemes of a word. It's similar to syllables, but a phoneme can be a smaller than a syllable. And my quick example is think of the word talked in the past tense, right? even with my Texas accent, I guess. T-A-L-K-E-D, talked. Now, when I say he talked to me, everybody understands what they hear, right? But if you're trying to put that into, into, into the individual phonemes, it's almost two different phonemes. It's T-O-K, right, for the first part, and then a T on the end. We don't usually say talkeded, right? We say talked. <laughs> which is like T-O-K, like TikTok, right? Talk, and then T on the end, talked. That's really what it sounds like. And a phonetic index, a computer is listening for those individual sounds and then breaking it all down into those phonemes rather than attempting to rebuild full world. So we have words. We have human transcription, machine transcription, and then phonetic indexing.
3: So is that how you get to a lobster dinner? (laughs) Pretty (laughs) much.
0: Who? Well, that that thing. You know, I can actually understand you, John. That's what's great about it. I can understand what you're saying. But the point comes is that you know, in some cases, if if a computer is trying to machine transcribe that, who knows what in the world the words that they would come up with and put down when you're saying lobster?
2: (laughs) Well, that was that was a great explanation, though, of the three main methods. So, what's the best method to review audio?
0: Well, so. The easy way to say that, of course, Sharon, of course, is it always depends, right? Uh, Again, another quick thing (laughs) that I just want to emphasize, again, is audio is meant to be heard, right? And we are always attempting to squeeze it into editable text. And another way to think about this as well, again, it's kind of simplified, but it's worth repeating, people communicate differently when they are talking versus when they are typing an email, right? Right. And so it's mm-hmm. important to kind of keep that in mind and why it's important to better understand that that there are differences to do. In some cases, machine human transcription makes complete sense. If you only have a few files and you really want the absolute best editable text transcript and you're willing to pay for it. Right. Because it's not like an hour of audio Takes an hour of transcribing. It usually takes about two or three hours because we know we have to stop and go back. So it usually is much more expensive. Machine transcription is typically the lowest cost but it is also the lowest accuracy. Again, think back to Dragon Dictation or your voicemails on your on your phone. So if you aren't concerned about accuracy, <laughs> then machine transcription <laughs> typically is, is okay. And in some cases, I, I joke, but in some cases, it may be perfectly fine. So in my opinion, and this goes back to nice Nixidia and, and what Doug and I have been talking about, from my experience that I've seen, phonetic indexing offers the best of all worlds. It's a little more expensive than machine transcription, Much lower still, though, than human transcription, but phonetic indexing is much more accurate than machine transcription. And the last two things quickly on that, if you have a massive number of files, phonetic indexing is usually a little bit quicker because, again, they're not having to find individual words and transcribe words. They're just indexing the phonemes of those words, right? And Doug just barely touched on this. if you have a lot of audio files that contain industry-specific terms, or technical terms, or acron- acronyms, then phonetic indexing is going to mean to be much more accurate. Here's a quick example I use: The, the letters I, D and S like it, i don't know what that would stand for but this is an example like intrusion IDS. detection system
3: <laughs> okay thank you john i knew
0: i knew you would save me there but like when we are talking to when i talk to you i'm not going to say intrusion detection system every time right i'm going to say ids but if mm-hmm. you say it quickly it's like ids 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 it could come out as ideas i d e a s Mm-hmm. Anyway, just to give you a quick idea, like if you've got files that have a lot of technical terms or, you know, industry specific type terms like that, then the phoneme approach may be a little bit more accurate, much more accurate many times than a machine transcription.
3: So so the last question for for both you guys is how do you expect the discovery of, of audio and video files to to evolve in the future? And, and I, I kind of see this as... You know, like today, we're, we're doing more examinations on, on mobile devices than we are on actual computers. So are, are you seeing kind of a trend, a particular roadmap, if you will, as
1: far as discovery of audio and video files goes for down the road? Absolutely. You know, I guess they say necessity is the mother of invention. And certainly the necessity is going to be to discover audio and video files, and it's going to continue to grow. And I think it's going to grow significantly. When Brett talked about the human transcription method, I I refer to that as the brute force method. It's just literally, I mean, it's just hours and hours of pounding your way through uh, audio files to determine what they say. And it can be effective, but sure is costly and time-consuming. So to me, I think the application of advanced technologies like phonetic indexing that uh, Brett talked about it's going to become more and more important to address that necessity. Audio and video files are routinely relevant in litigation today, and the volume of the audio and video ESI is multiplying. So I think organizations are going to have to incorporate advanced technologies into their workflows to address the increased demand. Uh, they can't use the brute force method to keep up, and they can't just bury their heads in the sand anymore when it comes to audio and video discovery and hope it will go away. So. That's what I think, and I think you're going to see a lot of it, a lot more advanced technologies incorporated into companies' workflows. Brett, what do you think?
0: Yeah, no question. Completely agree with you, Doug. And one of the things that I know technologies like Nexidia are being used for, for example, is every financial call typically, right? Most financial, like if you call your financial broker and ask for a trade or do that, like almost every call has to be recorded, right? That's part of Dodd-Frank and other regulations. Like it's 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 those kinds of industries and those requirements, I think, that are going to be driving this even more to the extent now to where those industries need to record this and they need to be able to search it quickly, be able to find that kind of information. And again, I, I hate to kind of keep bringing it up, the current events, but we have all seen and will continue to see, I am confident that video and audio recorded by individuals on mobile phones, John, to like, to your point, and just the Mm -hmm. fact that, you know, that kind of information is important. And then lastly, to Doug's point about the fact that we're all working from home virtually it's recorded zoom meetings today it's recorded webinars it's 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 podcasts (laughs) it's it's all of this today that we're just being able to consume this kind of information through these different mediums and so it's 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 no question that it's it's definitely going to be something that we'll be seeing more and more often
2: we certainly will, and uh, I really want to thank you both for being our guest today to, to enlighten us, Brett and Doug, and to riff off one of your uh, remarks. Uh, <laughs> Doug, um, what should I say about you two? <laughs> I, I know what you mean. We all have speaking habits that we wish we could uh, get, get rid of, and, and they don't go away very easily. But you guys are bright, you're witty, you're fun, and you're full of knowledge, and thank you for passing all of that knowledge on to our listeners. I know everybody learns something. Something, and we're very grateful. Thank you.
0: Thanks for having us, Sharon and John. And great to be with you, Doug.
1: Yep, great to be with you, Brett. And as always, thanks, Sharon and John. As always, this was a lot of fun.
3: Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or an Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts.
2: And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at SenseiEnt.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives.
0: Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in
2: iTunes.